turn to Matthew chapter 6. And there we'll read together the first 18 verses of that chapter. Matthew 6, 1 through 18. And in response to God's word, we'll sing together Psalm 103, stanzas 4 and 5. We consider this passage of God's word in relation to our confession about the address of our prayers, our Father in heaven. Hear the word of our God as follows. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And I may proclaim to you the word of our God as we've read it from Matthew 6, and as the church has summarized and confessed God's word in Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find that beginning on page 560 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 46. where we echo God's word in this way, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? 
to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response from Psalm 130, the stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's our experience that Prayer is hard work, and rightly so. Prayer, like anything else that's beautiful, is not something learned overnight. In the history of the church, there are some master teachers of prayer. I think of Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther. Each of them wrote at length on prayer in, some, in many places. But none of them developed their teaching on prayer based first and foremost on their own experiences. For each of them, their teaching and personal practice took its cue from the master of prayer, the Lord Jesus. And so what a blessing it is that we, in our desire to master the art of praying, may devote attention once again in the catechism to the Lord's prayer. The Lord includes everything there, from our daily bread to the Lord's return, your kingdom come. It recognizes God's glory, hallowed be your name, and our greatest need, forgive us our debts. Christ gave this prayer to us as the key to unlock all the riches of prayer. Before we proceed then to the various petitions of that prayer, We need to concern ourselves first with its address, our Father in heaven. For these first words are essential to the prayer, setting the tone for all that follows. They point up for us that communion with God is possible. The communion we enjoy with our Father, that communion which we hope to see visible expression of next week, well, that communion is enjoyed only because for us, uh, is only possible rather for us because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John Calvin said that to call God Father is to pray in Christ's name. This address then is rooted in the life and the work of Christ. We know the Father through him. Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. And so Christ, who has, by his death and resurrection, opened access for us to the Father's throne, teaches us to say, Our Father in heaven. 
So I bring you God's word in the following way. Christ teaches us how to rightly address God. Our address expresses three things. First, God's fatherly majesty. Secondly, God's heavenly uh, fatherly mercy. Secondly, God's heavenly majesty. Thirdly, God's almighty power. So first, we see that this address expresses God's fatherly majesty. Prayer, we understand, needs to begin in the right way. And the ticket to starting in the right way is having a right understanding of the nature of prayer. Of course, in Lord's Day 45, last week, we started the the discussion about prayer. And there we considered some questions like, why do we have to pray? How should we pray? And what we must pray? But our Lord's Day this afternoon gives us the opportunity to reflect a little more deeply on the question, what is prayer? Besides the fact that prayer is the most important part of our thankfulness before God, what is the nature of prayer? What are we doing in prayer? I'll consider then question 120. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? Address, we say. With that word, prayer is immediately characterized as speaking with God, dialoguing with God. What that means? We're not the only ones talking. We are in conversation. Prayer is not strictly, listen, Lord, for your servant is speaking which is often our estimation of prayer. No, prayer is actually in the first place the opposite. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. For us to offer a prayer pleasing to God and heard by him, we must, above all, be able to be quiet. In that quietness, we listen. Prayer is simply but profoundly this, a personal response to the knowledge of your God. God speaks to me in his word, and in prayer I seek to respond through the Spirit to God and what I know of God. God speaks, I answer. Praying is always a reaction to an echo of God's word. For if God doesn't speak to you first about who he is, how you may address him, what you may ask of him, well, then your prayer life would be superficial, vanity. When you pray earnestly, you will pray with words borrowed from Scripture. Put in your own words, to be sure, but words invested with scriptural language. In that way, God's word to you and your words back to God are united. Well, this truth, brothers and sisters, of our answering God's instruction is then caught also in the question, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? Christ commanded us to to utter this address in response to God. Perhaps it sounds to you like the Catechism made a bit of a mistake here. Maybe you'd like to see a different word in this question. 
Why has Christ allowed us to address God as our Father? For to be sure, it is a great privilege that we enjoy. There's no privilege that we can think of that is greater than to call the creator of heaven and earth, the God above all gods, Father. But we sinful, mortal people may do that. That's a privilege that sets us above the angels because they are merely servants. They may not call God Father. We can. Certainly a privilege, yeah? Yet the Catechism's choice of words is faithful to Scripture. Christ has commanded us for this reason. You and I enjoy a covenant bond with God. And so if we say that we are unworthy to use the name Father in prayer, that sounds pious. But by that, we actually empty the work of Christ. Christ came to die in order to restore that relationship with our Father that we severed in paradise. That's one of the benefits we now have. We cannot strike that and any other benefit from God's hand. And so Christ commands us today to pray, Father. You know, the closest relation we have with someone in authority is found in that word, Father. A judge is your worship or your honor. A policeman is officer. Friend, family friend might be uncle or aunt. But there's only one man in the world you call Father. And that's what the Lord Jesus says you need to call God. We see the height of God's mercy in that. And our reading from Matthew 6 elaborates on this. There we come across Christ explaining three religious acts. Giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. And for all three of those, Christ is rebuking the doctrine and life of the Pharisees, the hypocrites. Verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. The Lord Jesus is speaking out against such acts of righteousness. The Pharisees thought that through these kinds of acts and others, they could perhaps earn a slice of their salvation. Man's efforts, instead of God's fatherly mercy, comes to the foreground in salvation. In that context, their praying was obviously so wrong. It was devoid, empty of any shred of reverence and trust of a child toward his father. Christ rails against this, especially since these Pharisees were so prominent in the community. People would take their cue, their leadership, their example from them. Christ protests this public display and strikingly, very strikingly, without missing a beat, He goes on to mention the pagans who keep on babbling, thinking they will be heard because of their many words. Do you know what they would have said to the Pharisees? 
Look, there's no difference between your prayers and the prayers of pagans. By your lofty words and your pompous attitude, you want God's attention. You want to impress God so that he'll grant you your desires for your own purposes rather than you approaching him in faith and reverence. Look how hard Christ comes down on them. They are the leaders of God's people. They should know better. He says, verse 8, Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You can't impress God, surprise God, get the better of God. You have to know your God. Pray with the biblical knowledge of who you are before God. Believe you're his child because he is your father. But we all have certain thoughts about fathers, thoughts based largely on our experience with our own father. We We can't help going in that direction when Christ describes our relationship to God as that of father child. And some of us might have a father who is or was very caring for us. Others among us, however, might have a lot of bad memories of our dad. A dad who was distant, uninterested, abusive. When the Lord Jesus instructs us to address God as our father, he doesn't want us to fill up that term with perhaps the baggage of our experiences with our earthly father. For your heavenly father knows your inmost being, your very heart. And never, ever does he visit you with trials that are unnecessary. He does nothing with the intention of exasperating you. He disciplines you. And that for good. So we address him as our father. You'll likely come across the idea at some point that our Savior was being a bit of a revolutionary here when he instructed his disciples to address God as our father. The Jews, it said, would have been grossly offended that this prophet was introducing a much too familiar and therefore irreverent way of calling upon God. Such an idea, beloved, is rubbish. This is not a new name, but an old one. Christ isn't being revolutionary. Any honest review of the Old Testament will show that addressing God as our Father was by no means uncommon. Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, we read in verse 6, Is he not your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Even before Israel arrived at the promised land, they knew God was father to them. They associated God, father, and creator. Same sentence. What about Isaiah 64, where the exiles call upon God? But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Again, you hear that father-creator connection. Israel is in exile and yet still confesses God with that most intimate name, 
pleading him to forgive them and restore them. It's to be their father, in other words. And so you see the faithfulness of your Savior to God's word, even when it comes to his teaching on prayer. Did it strike you how often in the passage we read together, Jesus refers to God as Father? Verse 1, 4, 6, 8, 9, 14, 15. That's wonderful. Christ is illustrating there is no one more able to care for you or willing to care for you than your Father in heaven. Christ's upcoming work at that point on Golgotha is central in our confession's explanation of this wonderful address. Answer 120, God has become our Father through Christ. And there is no one who more forcefully and vividly felt the agony of a distant and withdrawn father than Jesus Christ. God totally withdrew his favor from his son. That reality was so heart-wrenching, soul-destroying, that Christ couldn't even cry out, My Father, my Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was denied from the Father, and he denied himself the Father's favor so that he could place the name Father on our lips and have our God close to us forever. In Christ's sacrifice, brothers and sisters, we see God's fatherly compassion and mercy the clearest. We became sons of God through the shedding of Christ's blood. We now have access to our Father in prayer. And all that the Father would give to his Son, he also would give to us for the sake of Christ. Yes, that's important for us to keep in mind. For like the Pharisees, we can think at times too much of ourselves in prayer. We can think sometimes that the Lord answers prayers because we love him or because we expressed our needs so clearly to him. That's a mistake, one to avoid. Something similar to the well-behaved elder son of the parable. His father should be proud of him, not of his prodigal brother. But the older son forgot one thing. He was no son at all. He was a slave in the house. He worked like a hired hand, never completely happy. There was no childlike, but a slavish fear. So we have to be careful for our part. As soon as we think that our status as a child of God is the basis for his answer and his favor, and we've handed over our right to be called as children. <clears throat> no, the basis for, answer it, for God's answer is not found in our being children. It's not. But it's in God's fatherhood in Jesus Christ. You and I will never pray in this life in perfect holiness 
and we will never approach God in perfect childlike reverence and trust. So we have no basis in ourselves for addressing God or, for that matter, expecting any answer from Him. That we are now children of His love, we owe to Christ. He restored our relationship. We now re enjoy the Father's mercy. And so Christ commands us to call Him our Father. Whenever you pray, believe He is your Father, merciful, gracious. There are many times I sin against Him, but He will always be my Father. <clears throat> and like the father of the prodigal son, God will accept a broken and a contrite heart. Forgive me, Father. I am not worthy to be yours. God will accept you in Jesus Christ in fatherly mercy. And yet our Savior did not leave the address with just an intimate name, which takes us to our second point, we see that that address expresses God's heavenly majesty. We confess, why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. <clears throat> well, does it seem as if Christ is now canceling out all that is intended with the words, Our Father, as if with the one hand he's taking back what was given by the other. Our Father, so intimate and near, but heaven, so far away, so distant, so lofty and formal. God is in heaven, but he doesn't show himself. Sometimes when we want him to intervene, he keeps himself hidden. Isn't that what made the psalmist cry out? Don't hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. Psalm 102, verse 2. So what benefit do you and I get from our Father when in heaven seems to cancel all that out? Well, indeed, seems is the correct word. Because the reality is that this is not so. This reasoning points out that earthly thinking about God is in our blood. That's how Greeks and Romans, all the heathen nations, conceived their gods. They were made in the image of man. The ancient myths are full of gods acting according to the base attitudes of those who worship them. Well, that worldly, that lowly thinking is in our blood as well. We're often ready to judge God by our human standards. It shows up, for example, when we accuse God of maybe being biased. Look at how he favors the one over the other. Look how he grants the one family all kinds of things, but withholds all kinds of things from the other. It doesn't just apply to our thoughts on material goods. We adopt earthly thoughts when we think of wisdom, status, faith, how unfair, how unjust God is that he gives it to the one and not the other. And so those words in heaven at the end of the address are a corrective. They are intended to bring to an end 
human thoughts about God. They're intended to bring our expectations to where they should be. The heavens are pure. God, whose throne is in heaven, is pure in all that he does and leaves undone. That's what we have to think when our thoughts go to heaven. God is infinitely high above us. And as Isaiah writes, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, if the Father's ways and thoughts are above ours, that means he is infinitely greater than we can comprehend. God himself said through Isaiah, I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not done, yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Human earthly thoughts and descriptions don't come close to capturing our eternal father's majesty. Our God more often emphasized his total uniqueness from us by speaking of his eternal presence. In God, there is nothing earthly, nothing small, nothing petty, nothing finite. In other words, we can't fathom his ways and his thoughts. But every single one of them we know has meaning. God's design was figured out long before you or I ever gave thought to anything. With God, everything is great, exalted, heavenly, and perfect. So God is not fickle to choose who he wants or doesn't. He's not unjust. He's not unfair. He's great in heaven. Sang Psalm 2 this morning. He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds the kings and rulers and their nations in derision. So when we address God, consider his majesty. <clears throat> that means we may never speak with him, of course, as if he's our buddy or our pal or, as in some Christian songs, our lover. Perish a thought. And our praying may not be sloppy, but well thought out. He is God in heaven. He created and he sustains us moment by moment. There is no place for being flippant or casual before him. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That takes us to our final point where we consider that our address expresses God's almighty power. Brothers and sisters, you could say that as Father, God will help us. He is merciful. And as the heavenly, as the exalted one, he is able to help us. Those words in heaven teach us to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. God has heaven for his throne. What comfort that brings to us. 
All powers are subject to him. He's in total control everywhere and always. Natural disasters are under his reign. Governments are under his arm. One word from him is sufficient. And even his enemies must obey him, whether they want to or not. Nothing, not the powers of evil or forces of nature, is too great for his omnipotence. Our catechism, however, is not actually referring to these kinds of things. Rather, it teaches us here that we may expect from his almighty power everything we need for body and soul. He's promised to provide for us and to protect us. That was spoken to us at our baptism. When you were baptized into the name of God the Father, he promised to provide you with all good and avert all evil or turn it to your benefit. By faith, then, you can never expect too much from his almighty power. You are to believe that what God says he will do, he will. That trust toward God needs to be basic to your prayer. God will much less deny you in faith what you ask of him than our earthly fathers would refuse us earthly things. As the Lord said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? catechism you see here is very explicit in its terminology, very forceful. We may expect, answer 121 says. We can't miss that. Praying is not the end of all things. It's not the end of the story. When we have made our request to God and the answer doesn't come immediately, at least maybe that we can't see it, We must wait and expect an answer. Here we have to think of the example of Elijah. He was a man just like us, James writes. The Lord withheld rain from the land for three years. Then he told Elijah, I will send rain on the land. Elijah didn't doubt his word. He passed on the message to King Ahab, but he did more. Elijah bent down to the ground put his face between his knees to pray. Elijah had received a promise, and therefore he could have an expectation. He told his servant, go, look toward the sea. There's nothing there, the servant said after looking. Remember how many times more he ended up saying the same thing? Six more times. Heavens didn't change. But Elijah didn't become despondent. He persevered. Go, keep on looking. The Lord has promised, after all. He waited until finally, at the seventh time, the servant came back and reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Waiting. That's a difficult task. The devil wants to convince you that God doesn't hear you, that your praying is pretty well in vain, a waste of your time. Temptation becomes great. And yet, 
Wait. Wait expectantly for the answering of your prayers. God often lets us wait to teach us patience. But he also wants our requests to be in harmony with his word. Remember, in prayer we have to echo God's word. So ensure your expectations are scriptural, rooted in his promises. Beloved, can you see that already the address of your prayers is so rich and powerful and beautiful? It's really a prayer in itself. This address, uttered from the heart, quiets the restless heart. It gives strength, courage to the weary. It repeats God's word after him. My soul becomes like a weaned child within me. For I pray, our Father in heaven. Amen.